The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Scripture reading this morning is uh, Psalm 73. Please open up in your Bibles and join me if you are able. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 73, which, yes, that is the one right after the psalm that we studied last week. And I don't know about you, uh, but last week after we finished walking through Psalm 72, I was left um, kind of in a reflective mood, and I found myself thinking a lot about Texas Hold'em, um, which, if you're, I, I, I don't know if that confuses you, I promise it follows, um, if you're not familiar with Texas Hold'em, Texas Hold'em is a form of poker. Uh, it's not the traditional five-card poker where you draw five cards and hold them all in your hands. No, you are getting, and yes, I promise, it's essential to understand Texas Hold'em in order to follow for the rest of this morning, okay? All right, so you're dealt two cards, 
each player is, and then three cards are dealt face up onto the table. It's called the flop. You flop over these three cards, and those are shared by everybody at the table. Later will come a fourth card, that's called the turn, and then will come a fifth and final card, and that's called the river. And all throughout this dealing, bets are being placed, so forth and so on. But basically your goal is to use the two cards in your hand and the five shared cards on the table to come up with the best five-card combination that you, you can. So Psalm 72 left me thinking about this game because when, when you read, when you go through Psalm 72, you feel like you've been dealt pocket aces. And pocket aces is when the two cards you're dealt in your hand are both aces, like the best thing you can be given. It's like, this is going to go well. If you remember Psalm 72, it's this awesome prayer of an elderly David passing kingship down to his son, Solomon. And David prays for Solomon to be God's promised king who's going to bring shalom for God's people, peace, prosperity, righteousness, justice as he crushes the wicked of this world. It just feels like you're being dealt like the most awesome hand ever. And then comes the flop in Psalm 73. Like you can be dealt pocket aces, and then because of the flop, you, you got nothing going on for you really except a pair. That's what it feels like when we get into Psalm 73. This psalm deals out the reality that Solomon is not the promised king. And he doesn't bring shalom like we hoped that he would. Psalm 73 takes a look at the world and says, Everything going on in the world actually seems to be the opposite of what David prayed for in Psalm 72. When I look at the world, this world is not ruled by God's righteousness and justice. God's people don't have peace and prosperity. They don't have shalom. No, in fact, it seems like the opposite. It seems like the powerful of this world rule in unrighteousness and through injustice. And it seems like they are the ones who have the most peace and prosperity. The shalom that's been promised to God's people, it seems like the powerful, unrighteous, and unjust are the ones who have it. Shades, I wonder, did you feel that flop last week? Like, like after we walked through Psalm 72, seeing how this prayer for a promised king actually points to Jesus, and we, we, came, and we saw how Jesus came to pay the price of redemption. He will come again to keep the promise of redemption. It feels like through all that we're being dealt pocket aces until. Until we all walk out those doors and back into the flop of reality of our everyday lives where righteousness doesn't reign, injustice rules the day, and those that commit the most unrighteousness and injustice seem to be the ones who have the most peace and prosperity. Shades, that reality threatens to strangle your faith. Did you feel that last week? Pocket aces and you walk out into the flop. It just puts a strangled hold on your faith. Do you not feel that? Like like when, when it seems... Like goodness is poured out on those who reject God, while suffering and sorrow are the lot of his people. When it feels like that's the reality, isn't it hard to confess the things we confess, to say the things we say, to, to, to sing the things we sing? One of my favorite songs we sing is King of My Heart, and it's got that repetitive line in it, you are good. Don't you almost like choke on those words? Or even the harder ones to sing? 
you're never going to let me down? How in the world do you sing that in the midst of this world? What are we to do when our faith is met by the flop of reality? That's the question of Psalm 73. And it's asked through the testimony of Asaph. Begin reading it with me. Psalm 73, verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Truly, it's the Hebrew word, ak. Got to get that phlegm going. Ak. I tell you that because it is important. That word appears three times throughout this psalm, and it sets up the structure of the psalm. The psalm breaks down into three sections, each section starting with that word truly. Here we're at the first one. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, Asaph says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So we've got a psalm of Asaph right here. Asaph was a Levite. He was a priest in both the days of Solomon and in the days of David. In fact, he was one of the chief musicians. He was a songwriter, a singer, a leader of worship. He did that in the tabernacle during the days of David, and he kept right on doing it in the temple during the days of Solomon. In other words, Asaph is one who would have heard the prayer of Psalm 72, the prayer we walked through last week. He may have even been the one who led the singing of it at the coronation of Solomon. Like, Can you imagine the strength that moment would have given his faith? Strong faith that would definitely say, like verse 1 does right here, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, to those who have true faith. The pure in heart are not those who are actually pure. It's those who God has made pure. They have true faith in God. Truly God is good to them. Wouldn't he have said that if he saw, here's Solomon, we're singing over him. He's going to be that promised king that brings God's shalom. Truly God is good to those who have faith in him see how he's keeping his promises but then something happens that begins to suffocate asaph's faith look at verse 2 but as for me my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped what happened the flop the flop of reality verse 3 i was envious of the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked this is where we need to see the first of the three movements in Psalm 73. Number one, the flop. Told you, it's gonna, I, I'm sorry if you don't like the Texas Hold'em illustration. It is going to run throughout the entire thing, so buckle up. Here we go. The flop. All right, we're going to go through the flop, the river. And, excuse me, the flop, the turn in the river. So the flop. Truly, ach, God is good until. That's the flop of this psalm. Truly, God is good until. This is the flop that Asaph is feeling. He had a firm faith in the goodness of God, his righteousness, his justice, his promise to bring peace and prosperity through all of that. Asaph had a firm faith in God's goodness until. Until what? He tells us until he looks with his eyes at the world around him and sees the flop of reality. Isn't that what he says in verse 3, that he was envious? When I saw... I looked at the world. I set my eyes on the world around me. I saw the prosperity. The Hebrew word right there, shalom. 
The shalom that should be promised and should be coming to God, that has been promised and should be coming to God's people. Felt like I saw it being poured out on the wicked, those who reject God. When I saw the shalom of the wicked, when I looked around the world and saw injustice prosper and the unrighteous at peace, it put a chokehold on my faith in the goodness of God. Shades, do you see the flop Psalm 73 is dealing onto the table? Truly God is good until I look with my eyes at the surrounding reality, the wicked prospering. Asaph tells us exactly what he means when he says that he sees the wicked prospering. He means, number one, they seem pain-free. Look at verse 4. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they're healthy. A little, little different cultural context going on right here with this wording. What he means is they don't look like they're starving like the poor do. They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He says the wicked seem pain-free. They seem perfectly healthy. They don't struggle with things like infertility. Even though they're terrible parents, God, why do you give them children and yet withhold them from us? Do you feel what Asaph's feeling? God, why, why do so many who hate you live long, healthy lives while some of the greatest saints I know suffer and die so young? Why does it seem like the troubles of those who reject you are so few while the troubles seem so many? They seem like they always come for those who, who love and follow you. Asaph says, truly God is good until I look with my eyes and see the wicked prospering. They seem pain-free. Not only that, but he says, they, increasing, they increase materialistically. They seem pain-free and they increase materialistically. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. That last phrase could literally be translated, the imaginations of their heart overflow. All of this right here in verses 6 and 7, all of this is the language of excess. It's the, it's the language of, of self-indulgence. Their heart, the place of desire, place of our loves their their heart the place of desire it's pictured like a river that's constantly overflowing its banks in other words there's no limit placed on their desires they want everything and they'll do whatever they've got to do to get it even committing violence or whatever they need to do and once they have it all they will proudly wear it before all like a like a necklace we're told right here in the ancient world necklaces or, or chain medallions were often used to show status or rank uh, Two biblical characters, Joseph and Daniel, both were told, are, are given chain medallions to show their rank. Joseph in the kingdom of Egypt, Daniel in the kingdom of Babylon. So, so status symbol. Basically, what's going on is these people want to wear whatever brands they need to wear. They want to drive whatever car they need to drive, live in whatever house they need to live in, send their kids in whatever school they need to send them to in order to show the world just how much they are increasing materialistically. Asaph sees the wicked prospering 
because they seem pain-free, they increase materialistically, and third, they act powerfully. Look at verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. There was a um, Canaanite myth. You remember the land of Canaan, the land of Israel before the Israelites uh, conquered it. And in the land of Canaan, there, there, there was this Canaanite myth about their god, Mot. It's the god of death. And it said that Mot had a, a lip on the earth and a lip in the heavens and his tongue to the stars. The, the image, or like in other words, death reaches everywhere. And it can boast everywhere because it has power over everything. And so Moth, the god of death, is pictured as boasting throughout all creation, heaven to earth and everywhere. That myth might just be echoed right here to describe these people's godlike arrogance. Do you see it? They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut. What an image. Their tongues strut throughout the earth. In other words, they proclaim their power throughout all creation. And they do it, verse 8 says, with malice towards everyone else while simultaneously holding themselves up loftily. I didn't know they had social media in the ancient world. Like a way to scoff and speak harshly of everyone else while holding yourself up as a paragon of virtue for all to see? Shades, I know that I, I riff on social media a lot, but I do it because it has a powerful shaping effect on your heart. The imaginations of your heart, the desires of your heart. Social media is the number one discipler in the church right now. What are you being discipled to? Do we not still see what Asaph is telling us that he sees right here? When we look around the world, does it not still seem like the wicked are pain-free, increasing materialistically, acting powerfully? And the fourth thing he tells us, they just keep growing in popularity. Seems counterintuitive, does it not? We hear that list of those first three items and we're like, nobody's going to want to be around these people, but yet... Asaph tells us they just keep growing in popularity. Look at verse 10. Therefore, like in other words, because they strut their power and display it throughout the earth, therefore his, this is, this is a really difficult verse right here in Hebrew to bring over into English, um, which is why if you just straight up read it out of your ESV, it probably sounds really confusing. That singular his right there, is what's called a collective singular. Basically, it's referring to all the wicked. So I'm going to translate it for you the way I would translate it to make it read a little bit smoother. Therefore, the wicked's people, that's those who follow the wicked, the wicked's people turn back to them. In other words, they just follow them all the more and find no fault in them. 
when they tweet to the heavens and post strut the tongue throughout the world wide web People who follow them just follow them all the more and find no fault in them. That last phrase, find no fault in them, the Hebrew literally says the waters of fullness are drained by them. It's an image. It does mean that they find no fault in them, but here's how you get to there from here. The waters of fullness are drained by them. In other words, no matter what these powerful, wicked people say, more and more people keep following them and drinking down their claims. We've never seen that one before, have we? Have we ever seen people tempted to follow, I don't know, powerful politicians, let's say? Have we ever seen people tempted to follow powerful politicians, drinking down everything they say, finding no fault in any of their claims because they want a share in their power? And so the wicked just keep growing in popularity. Do you see why it's getting hard for Asaph to believe? Because no matter, no matter how much he leads the congregation to sing, truly God is good, good, good. No matter how much he gets them to sing, you're never going to let me down. Here's what he sees. The wicked seem pain-free. They increase materialistically. They act powerfully and they grow in popularity. And God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Look at verse 11. And the wicked say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They boast to the heavens. God is either ignorant, he either doesn't see what we're doing, or he doesn't care what we're doing. So let's just keep on doing it. So the wicked just keep on prospering. And Asaph summarizes it all up in verse 12. Behold, in other words, shades, you look. I've told you what I see. You look, behold, do you see this? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Asaph says, do you see what I see? Do you see the flop of reality? That truly God is good until you look with your eyes at the world. Do you feel this, Shades? I do. Every day. Every day I feel this. And it would. It would choke my faith. It would, but this psalm is not done dealing. We've seen the flop. Here comes the turn. Number two, the turn. Truly, everything is empty until. Now, truly, everything seems empty until. This is, this is how the flop leaves Asaph feeling. Like, everything's vain. Everything's empty. Look at verse 13. All, it's the Hebrew word, ach, better translated, truly. Marks off our second section right here. He says, truly in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph feels like his pursuit of God and his pursuit of a righteous life has all been in vain. Literally the word means like mist, vapor, nothingness. It's all been empty. Especially when compared with the fullness of the life of the wicked that he's just been talking about. This, this is the feeling that the flop leaves us with. And shades for so many, it suffocates their faith. I mean, in, 
in just recent years, how many Christians have publicly walked away from their faith posting quote-unquote deconversion stories? And they do it because they say they've seen many in power who claim the name of Christ while prospering through wickedness, unrighteousness, and injustice. And they can't reconcile the two. That's what Asaph would live to see. Solomon, the king that he helped install, the king that was supposed to be a righteous king who represented God, Solomon would eventually prosper by becoming all kinds of ungodly. And that would be the story of almost every king to ever come after Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom splits in half, north and south. The north never sees a righteous king. The south only sees a few. And they are far between. Things go from bad to worse. And it's the kings, the kings, the powerful ones who were the very people who were supposed to represent God, show the people what God was like. It's they who primarily prosper through wickedness. How, how is that not supposed to suffocate the faith of God's people? And it did. It did suffocate the faith of many then, and it still suffocates the faith of many now. Powerful, evil People who claim the name of Christ, they seem to prosper through injustice and wickedness, making my pursuit of God seem vain, empty, pointless. I, I am talking with college student after college student after college student who are looking at people, they're looking at me my generation and the generations above me and they are looking at us and they're saying you claim the name of christ but you seem like having power is more important no matter what kind of wickedness and injustice it must be pursued through god have mercy if i in any way contribute to the suffocation of somebody's faith because I cling to the power of this world more than to the power of the coming kingdom of Christ. What could possibly turn this situation around? Asaph wants something to turn his situation around. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, Asaph is saying, if I'd have just shared how I was feeling, just put out a public deconversion story, like, look, y'all, here's what's going on, and I don't know that I can have faith in the goodness of God anymore. I'm done, and I'm walking away. He said that not only would have damaged his faith, but it would damage the faith of countless others. And Asaph doesn't want to harm his faith and he doesn't want to harm the faith of anyone else. He wants to understand. He wants to understand how can I live in this world, see the reality that I see, and all of God's promises and what God says is true about himself. How can all of that be true? How can God be good? How can it be true that he's never going to let me down? He wants to understand how the promises of God are still true in light of the flop of reality that he sees. But this seems a wearisome task to him. Everything seems empty until 
Here comes the turn. Look at verse 17. This seems a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. That's the wicked's end. Do you see the turn that Psalm 73 is dealing on to the table? Truly everything seems empty until I understand with my mind. Asaph says he discerned something. He he understood, he finally understood something with his mind. What did he understand? He tells us, I understand how the story ends. I discerned there the wicked's end. How did that happen? How did the turn happen? Asaph said it happened when he went into the sanctuary of God, when he went into the temple. It happened because the temple was designed to tell a different story than the one that Asaph had been hearing. It was designed to tell the true, deep, ultimate story of reality. The temple, by design, was meant to tell the story of our separation, the separation of people from God because of sin. The temple with all of its many courts and walls and veils and all these things spoke adamantly of our separation from God because of sin. And the only way to enter back in was through sacrifice. And you came from the east. That's important. The gate of the temple, you come from the east to enter into it. That's important because the east is the direction that God sent Adam and Eve out of Eden. The temple was built literally to tell the story of here's how we get back to God. Here's how we get back to Eden. All the decoration of the temple mimicked and echoed the decoration of creation. Here's the way back into the garden. And the way has been made by God through sacrifice. God deals with our sin through sacrifice, reunites us to himself so that we don't have to suffer the destruction and death of our sin. That is the end of all who reject God, no matter what their life looks like right now. You see, the temple gave Asaph a different lens through which to see the story of the world. It gave him the lens of God's word. And this is what brings about the turn. The story of the world looked one way to Asaph's eyes, but through the lens of the word, Asaph experienced a renewing of his mind. Shades, so do we. We come together, not in the sanctuary of God, but as the sanctuary of God. We are his temple now. We are as individual stones being built together as a dwelling place for God, a holy temple of the Holy Spirit. We come together as the sanctuary of God, as his temple, and we do so to hear a different story than the one the world tries to hold before our, before our eyes. We come together to, to hear, to sing, to, to pray, to celebrate the true, deep, ultimate story of reality, the story of the gospel. Jo- John Mark said this at the very beginning of our service, that everything we do here is aimed at renewing our minds so that the word of the gospel becomes the lens through which we see the world. Everything we sing, everything we preach, everything we pray is aimed at putting the gospel before us as the lens through which we will see the world, the story by which we will understand the world. Even the design of our service, just like the design, the layout of the temple, the layout of our service, even that is meant to center us on the gospel. We we begin with a call to worship because it is God who has called us as rebels back to himself. 
And we come confessing that we are rebels who rebelled, and immediately we hear the good news of the gospel through the assurance of pardon. We hear it again through the passing of the peace. We hear it again through the sermon. So then we are ready to celebrate our salvation through communion. We have peace with God because of the sacrifice of Christ, and we can come dine at his table, feast with him, celebrate through communion, through song, through through testimony. And we conclude by being commissioned. That's what our benediction does. It commissions us to go forth and share this gospel good news, the story that defines our lives, to share that with the the world. Everything we do is aimed at renewing our minds so that the gospel becomes the lens through which we see the world. Everything we do, Shades, is aimed at being the term. For truly, everything seems empty. When I'm out there, living my life, day by day, encountering the flop of the reality of this world, it can make my faith feel suffocated, make my faith feel so empty. Truly, everything seems empty. Until that turn, I understand with my mind, I understand the story of true reality. Shades, This is why corporate worship is vital to your faith. It's not an optional add-on. It's vital. And please, please, for the love of all that is good in this world, hear my heart on this. I don't say that or anything else I'm about to say. As a pastor who wants to get more people in a building in order for there to be more money in an offering plate in order to secure my job or anything like that, I don't care if we go bankrupt, sell the building, and i got to work at Starbucks. Nothing against anyone who works at Starbucks. But I don't care if I have to do that. We are still going to meet together, and I'm still going to spur you on towards God and Christ and the gospel. That's all I care about. Corporate worship is vital to your faith, to my faith. It's not an optional add-on for you or for me. Deconversions, they begin by stepping away from the church. 20 years of ministry, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen that story unfold. People begin to struggle because what they see in the world doesn't line up with their faith, so I'm just going to step away from the church for a little while while I figure this out. And that step away from the church becomes their first step away from Christ. Because we are stepping away from the story that defines our life. We are story-driven creatures. If you step away from one story, you will step into another. We step away from the story that defines our life. We end up embracing somebody else's story, somebody else's narrative, somebody else's gospel. Shades, this has been particularly easy. Particularly easy to do over the past year. Because we haven't been able to gather, to immerse ourselves in the story of the gospel. Yes, yes, we, we, we've done live stream stuff, and I'm thankful, I'm thankful for technology and the ability to live stream and all that. It's not the same thing. 
any more than a FaceTime call is the same thing as face-to-face. If this past year has taught us anything, it is that our technology is woefully inadequate to replace incarnated realities. I've talked, Shades, with so many pastors who have watched so many of their people's lives become defined, over the past year, become defined by a different story. A different story given them to, by, given to them by a Fox or CNN given to them by the right or the left, by the establishment or the grassroots movements, by the conspiracy theories, or by the heresy of Christian nationalism. Shades, there is only one story that defines true reality, and that's the story of the gospel. Don't walk away from it. Walk into it. As as Asaph walked into the sanctuary, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to gather with the sanctuary of God, to gather with God's people. I know, I know that there are some of you who are still in situations where live streaming is the only option for you. Understand that, that's okay. Do not feel me heaping guilt. I'm not doing that. I'm wanting to encourage all of us to consistently be immersing ourselves in the gospel alongside of one another. And if it is all possible to do that by gathering physically, I want to encourage you in that direction. Corporate worship is not optional to your faith. It's vital. It's where the turn happened for Asaph. Truly everything seemed empty to him until he understood with his mind the story of reality. See him unpack it. He unpacks the true story of reality, the real situation, in the third and final movement of Psalm 73, the river. Told you it was coming. Flop, turn, the river. Truly, the ultimate is unseen until I know with my heart. Truly, the ultimate, ultimate reality is unseen until I know that reality, not just with my mind, like we just talked about, but with my heart. Look at verse 18. Truly, ach, third and final one. Truly, you set them in slippery places. That's the wicked. God sets them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes the lord when you rouse yourself you despise them as phantoms when my soul was embittered when i was pricked in heart i was brutish and ignorant i was like a beast towards you my dog calvin he is uh he is currently at the vet it's gonna be fine it's fine um but he had to stay overnight i'm sure if we could somehow get into the psychology of a dog's head that at this moment, he feels absolutely abandoned by me. He, he thinks this anytime we leave him anywhere. He may even be a little bit bitter towards me. See if I'm ever going to shake that guy's hand again when he asks. He's a regular Benedict Arnold. Um, but he probably feels that way because he's a dog. He doesn't understand what I'm doing. He doesn't get the real story of what's going on. Probably just feels like he's being poked and prodded, maybe even tortured to the point of death. But the real story 
is that what's happening to him is aimed at his ultimate health and life. Asaph says this is what he was like. He was like a brute beast. When his eyes were focused on the wicked of this world, he didn't understand what was going on. He said he was bitter towards God, and that's because he was ignorant of the real story of what was happening. Ultimate reality was unseen until he was pricked in his heart. I'm flipping that phrase. He uses it to say, yeah, this is how I was pricked in the heart. God hurt my heart. I felt bitter. I think God flips that right here. Pricks him in his heart not to hurt it, but to heal it. Asaph felt this way. He didn't really know what was going on until he knew ultimate reality in his heart. What ultimate reality? The love of God and that God's love wins. You remember at the very beginning of the psalm, Asaph said that he felt like his feet were about to slip. Now, through the lens of the word, he sees ultimate reality. What is it? That it is the wicked who are in slippery places. God will make them fall to their ruin. They will be destroyed in a moment. They who seem to have power forever will be gone, swept away utterly by terrors. All of their health, their wealth, their power, their popularity. It's like a dream, Asaph says. It's like a dream that one day they're going to wake up from and they won't even be able to remember it. You know that feeling. You wake up, I had a dream, but it's gone. I can't even remember it. He says, that's what their wealth, health, all of that is going to be like. It's a phantom. It's a mist. It's a vapor. He's saying that the wicked are like portraits in, in the stretching room of Disney's Haunted Mansion. Is anybody familiar with this? I haven't been to Disney since I was in sixth grade, and I still remember the stinking haunted mansion. And the first room that they take you in is called the stretching room because it's filled with these portraits. These, it's, it's these portraits of people who look wealthy, healthy, they look happy. And then all of a sudden, the room begins to stretch upward, and the portraits elongate. You're only seeing them from the waist up. And as they stretch, you see the rest of, of the picture and each portrait reveals a terrible fate awaiting each of these aristocratic elites as a kid my favorite if i remember it correctly was this lady who was like holding this umbrella she looked like she was having the time of her life and when it stretches she's on a tightrope over an alligator pit i thought that was hilarious which probably says something about my childhood psychology but we're not going to dig into that right now for asaph the temple where he was immersed in the story of ultimate reality, the temple, it was, it was a kind of stretching room revealing to his heart what his eyes had been unable to see. All those who looked so powerful and prosperous were dangling by a thread over destruction. Verse 27 states it clearly. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And this, I'm telling you, Shades, is a revelation of God's love. It's a revelation of God's love. Because it is a revelation that he will not let evil win. 
That's what we're seeing right here. He is both lovingly patient with those who reject him. That's why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. He is lovingly patient towards a world who doesn't deserve his patience. And yet he is also lovingly just in that one day he will bring all evil to an end. Shades, do you see the river? Psalm 73 is dealing onto the table. Truly, ultimate reality is unseen until God lovingly reveals it to our hearts. And right here, he lovingly revealed to Asaph, don't be envious of the life of the wicked. Here's where it ends. And he is lovingly right now in this moment through this psalm doing the same thing for you and me, revealing to us that the wide, easy way of the world does indeed end in destruction. And the narrow, hard path It does indeed lead to life. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, like even though, this is Asaph saying, even though I was ignorant, I was brutish, I was was bitter towards you, even though I was doubting. I wonder how many of you find yourself in the midst of that place where Asaph was this morning, doubting. Doubting is not a sign of unbelief. It's a sign of faith. Faith doubts. Unbelief denies. You're a person of faith, even wrestling with doubt. Hear this. In the midst of where you are, even in the midst of feeling bitterness towards God, that's where Asaph was, and he says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Here's the ultimate reality of God's love that Asaph wasn't able to see until God renewed his mind with the story of ultimate reality, pricking his heart to heal it with the gospel. The ultimate reality is that even in the midst of Asaph's deepest wrestlings and questionings, when he thought he might leave God, God never left him. You are continually with me. You hold my right hand. In other words, you've redeemed me. You've made me yours. You never leave me, even in my doubting. No, you guide me with counsel, with your word. That's one of the Psalms phrases that it used for the word of God, God's counsel. You guide me with your word. Is that not what we've seen God doing through this psalm? He's guided Asaph, renewed his mind through the counsel of his word. And now Asaph declares in faith that God will guide him throughout the entirety of this life all the way home to glory. You guide me with the counsel of your word and afterward you will receive me to glory. This is ultimate reality. And this is the reality that enables us to sing, you are good, God, you are good. You're never going to let me down. We can sing songs like that because of the reality that God's love will redeem all things, right all wrongs, put an end to all evil, bring justice to every injustice, every place. The reason you can sing, you're never going to let me down, Shades, is because Every place where you have ever felt let down by God, those are the very places he is going to prove himself good. Redeem and reverse every effect of sin and death ever. And so I can sing, you can sing in faith. You're never going to let me down. Your love will remove all evil and guide me all the way to glory where I get you. That is the ultimate reality of the gospel. And it remains unseen until God reveals it to your heart. 
Do you know the reality of God's love with your heart? Like this morning, perhaps you're in the place where you have felt the flop. You used to say, God is good. Until you started looking at the world with your eyes, set your eyes upon them, and you began doubting. Today, through the testimony of Asaph in Psalm 73, see the turn. Truly everything may have felt empty to you, but understand until you understand with your mind the true story of reality, the gospel. This is why Asaph wrote Psalm 73. is for you to be able to hear and see what true reality is. Look at verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Asaph wrote this psalm to tell with his mouth what he'd seen with his eyes and now understands with his mind and knows with his heart. He wrote this to tell you and me and everybody about the works of God, what God has done to keep his promises even when it looks like they are failing. He has written this to tell us they are not. God is faithful. Hear the gospel. Christ purchased every promise with his cross, and he is coming to keep every promise wearing his crown. So come, come and immerse yourself in this river. Come and know the ultimate unseen reality. See it and know it with your your heart. Do you know the ultimate reality of God's love? Have you been immersed in this river? You can know if you have. If you have, your heart will cry out in unison with Asaph's in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here's Asaph's declaration to heaven and throughout earth. And it's not a declaration that is filled with God-like arrogance that brings death. No, it is filled with God-given humility that brings life. He declares that he has seen the end of everything he ever envied. And now he wants none of it. He wants the only true treasure that will last for all of eternity. He wants God. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing, nothing Everything I used to envy, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, that's my body. My body, it may fail, but he believes that it will be raised by God so that he may have his portion, his inheritance forever. My heart, that's his spirit, his faith. My heart may fail like it was at the very beginning of this psalm but it will not fail ultimately because God himself is the strength, the rock, literally, of my heart. He will sustain my faith to the end. He holds my right hand. He guides me in his counsel and afterwards will receive me in glory. And until that day, until that day, Shades, we say, I I invite you to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the rock, the strength of my heart, and my portion forever.